Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. We're all phenomenally present, feel unified, and, uh, and yet we are all the product of this very modularized and specialized brain. And with each uh, year, passing year in neuroscience, we find not only are these modular, specialized system sort of going on 24-7 and all the time. But every time we look at a particular system, we look within it and see another subsystem, and we look within that subsystem, and we see yet another subsystem, and we finally get the idea that evolution is pushing information out towards the periphery to the local module so that the computations and calculations that go in that make us the do what we do, are more and more uh, peripheral. That's great, except that it has this other problem associated with it, which was pointed out by Leibniz many years ago, that uh, as you study the parts, uh, you, and you know more and more about the parts, you may forget what the entire mill does. So if you study the parts of the mill, you may not know what the function of the whole mill is. And neuroscience and uh, has sort of positioned itself uh, right there, where we have incredible knowledge about uh, the modular nature, the specializations, but how does it all uh, come together? And one of the ways that people are thinking about it, of course, is that we think about it in terms of layered systems. And to take it at the most uh, uh, macroscopic point that we think about the neural layer, layer somehow interacting with the mental layer and it is trying to capture the interactions of those layers, which is the core of uh, cognitive neuroscience and neuroscience in general. And uh, that there is an interaction can be illustrated by a simple clinical example that uh, if you take someone who's depressed and give them psychotherapy, they get so far in the recovery. If you take the same sort of group and you give them uh, uh, therapeutic uh, pharmacological agents they get so far and you put them together and they get further. How does that top-down, bottom-up uh, interaction occur? And so we now know that uh, everything's complicated. Uh, we, used to, uh, we used to think it was real simple right here at uh, Salk, the, the, one of the great institutions who have, who have pointed the way in molecular biology. We, in the days of 19... 54 and 60s when we thought everything was simple, the world was simple, have given away to the fact that everything is complicated and there's interactions and complex organization to everything. And it's true for neuroscience. For those of you who are in philosophy, philosophically inclined, I highly recommend Andy Clark's book called Supersizing the Mind, where he points out that not only are we trying to figure out the codes of the brain, but how we as humans start to put into the environment and take things from the environment in such a way that to ultimately construct uh, how we function in the world, it's an interaction of things and the brain and everything uh, in between. And so uh, this is realized in a wonderful series of studies also by Hod Lipson's group at Cornell, where he makes the essential point that is really uh, so profound 
that uh, if you really try to study the control of, say, the finger movement, the neural analysis only takes you so far that, in fact, the dexterities of the finger are highly relied uh, on the actual mechanical structure, muscle system, and tendons uh, of the hand. So the brain kind of pushes, knows that that capability is there, and only codes how to do this only to a degree. So to look for the entire answer to how we are so dexterous within the neural code, you're going to miss the, the full story. So we get this big concept, modularity, and we're getting more and more of it. The question is, how do these modules interact? And I'm going to take you into the world of clinical uh, neuroscience and show you how we think about this in terms of uh, human patients. What I'm going to point to is the fact that once you understand the neurologic patients with lesion or split brains, as I've done uh, most of my life, uh, you come up with this notion that the modules interact and cue each other completely independently of a central command telling them what to do. That The system figures itself out. Now, what does that mean? What on earth does that mean? So let me show you. I'm going to first show you a, a clip here of a patient. And you'll hear me giving the patient commands. And see if you can, have, if you can figure out at all what it is that's going on here. With your left hand, make a fist. With your right hand, make a hitchhiker's gesture. Good. With your left hand, make a hitchhiker's gesture. Good. With your right hand, make a... Uh, no, with your left hand... Make the motion of uh, like using a screwdriver. What was it? The chair? A screwdriver with the left hand. <laughs> All right, try it with your right hand. Okay, now with your left hand. Okay. Now, okay, with your right hand, make a, the A-OK sign. How about with your left hand? Okay. Now let's close your eyes. Your eyes closed? Mm -hmm. right, with your right hand, make me a hitchhiker sign. With your left hand, make me the A-OK sign. Eyes closed. Eyes are closed. Okay, now with your right hand, make a screwdriver. With your left hand, make a screwdriver motion. You get the idea. I mean, you don't get the idea. How can you make sense of that? Well, if I tell you that, that of course, was a, a patient, a split-brain patient, who'd had her corpus callosum divided in order to separate the hemispheres to control epilepsy. So when I'm talking to her, you're t I'm talking to a split-brain patient where the left hemisphere cannot really communicate with the right, and the classic, all the classic syndromes that have been known about this for years were true in her. So if you flashed a picture two, of two words like you see here, key and ring, she would say, I only saw the word ring, and yet with her left hand be able to, to retrieve the word key because that was the right hemisphere uh, guiding the left hand. And the right hand, of course, could go find the, the ring if asked or just say it. So you get the idea. They're a split-brain patient. 
And also with split-brain patients, when you look at their sensory motor nature, you come up with this simple story that the left hemisphere can control the right hand dominantly and through dominant cortical spinal systems, and it can, on the ipsilateral hand, on the left hemisphere trying to control the right hand, it kind of can get shoulder movement, but not the distal hand-finger movements, right? So what you see in that patient is the whole story. And when I first say do something, her eyes are wide open. And so when she makes a gesture with her right hand, she sees it. And then when I tell her to make it with the left hand, she copies. She just looks at it and copies it, right? Now I say make something with your left hand. This right hand no longer is a model, And because of the split brain and because of the weak nature of the ipsilateral pathway, the posture can't be made. So now watch the movie, and it all becomes apparent. With your left hand, open fist. With your right hand, eyes are open. Good. With your left hand, make a hitchhiker gesture. Good. With your right hand, make a. uh, No, with your left hand. Make the motion of uh, like using a screwdriver. With the chair? A screwdriver with the left hand. Can't do it because the right hand has it. We didn't get the command first, so the left hemisphere is trying to control the left hand and so forth. You get the idea. <laughs> So is hard. Okay. Now, okay, with your right hand, make a, a the AOK sign. How about with your left hand? Okay. Now let's close your eyes. Your eyes closed? Mm-hmm. Right, with your right hand, make me a hitchhiker sign. With your left hand, make me the AOK sign. Eyes closed. Eyes are closed. Okay, now with your right hand, make a screwdriver. With your left hand, make a screwdriver motion. Get the idea. So, it's uh, in, in studying patients, you've got to make sure you're, they're, they're answering the question you ask because they're goal-oriented and they try to figure out how to get the goal achieved even though there are all these discrete disconnections which you know about and so forth. Now here's another example from case JW. And he, <laughs> this, is, this is one of the greatest pieces of footage ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, uh, we're flashing words to him and we're giving him instructions to do something like draw uh, what you'll see. And uh, he does this thing, and, I, and now that you know about cueing, now you know about how inter- hemispheres are trying to cooperate with each other, even though they're disconnected. See if you uh, follow this. So classic. Saw the flash. There's light. These are back in the days of carousel projectors and the light flash, but didn't see the actual word because we presented it in the left visual field, which only goes to his right hemisphere. And he's talking to you out of his left hemisphere, so he didn't see it, okay? Okay. 
I flashed the word Texas. Texas as well, later on. I mean, you gotta, that is just fantastic. There, there, uh, it, this is another one where uh, we're flashing the word 1928 to his right hemisphere and the word car to his left hemisphere. And we don't, for t- sake of time, we show these some other time. Uh, he draws an, a 1928 car. Now, how's he doing that? The cooperation is occurring through feedback and stop and starting with each hemisphere contributing it on the paper. Has nothing to do with inside uh, uh, things that are going on inside the brain. We can go on in other patients. So one of the findings that come out of MR research and language is that you always see in the standard little activation tasks, the classic language areas in the left hemisphere light up. But you very frequently see homologous areas on the right side light up as well. They're not talked about, but there they are on, on the data. And it turns out in uh, three of the split-brain patients that were heavily studied, over time they developed speech in their right hemisphere. 
So now you have a situation where you, the experimenter, when they're talking to you, kind of don't know who's talking to you. You know, is it the left brain or is it the right brain? So you have to be clever in how you uh, put together uh, and ask the question. And here's an example of a patient who does, is able to speak out of both hemispheres. And you can see the self-cueing, the cueing that goes on in this example. What we're doing is going to show this patient the word breakfast. So break is going to the left field right hemisphere, and fast is going to the right field left hemisphere. And watch what she does with this dilemma, because she's split. Remember that. She's split, and each hemisphere is saying its thing. And then watch her correct herself. Watch. Get it? So she starts with break, but the left hemisphere now knows that the game is to put the words together and it's soft fast, so she corrects uh, break to break so that she gets the word breakfast as the answer. So you see this constant cueing, constant cooperation between the hemisphere to complete the goal, to make it look like a, a whole process. So stuff works. Uh, uh, and we have all these modularized parallel systems working 24-7, and we like to infer that coming out of that is a unified uh, system. And uh, I don't have time to say, but there's lots of examples, of course, where uh, ad auctions on Google uh, seem to be, there's an auctioneer there, there isn't. Uh, cells work, there's no CEO for cells. And mines work, there's probably not a CEO for mines either. But there appears to be. And there's a system that uh, uh, I've talked about at length on other occasions uh, that in the left hemisphere that weaves the story together to make uh, the whole story. So I'll finish with um, one of the greatest neuroscientists ever to live, uh, Sir Charles Charrington, sort of captured this thing. 1937, which is a little annoying. Uh, but <laughs> so he writes here, how far is the mind a collection of quasi-independent perceptual minds integrated psychically in large measure by the temporal concurrence of experience. Its separate reserve of sub-perceptual and perceptual brain, if we may so speak, could account for the slightness of impairment following on some brain injuries. Thus, the slightness of disability following destruction or developmental failure or the great, of the great commissary is referring to the fact that uh, people born without a callosum don't seem to have these split effects. Between the two halves of the brain. Simple contemporaneity can conjoin them. So all these things in the end, like marbles cascading down or cooperating in anything, and out comes this wonderful thing called uh, human consciousness. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.